Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. So now I'm going to move on to the Bible reading. And the first reading is Isaiah 61. It's so exciting I can actually say in your pew Bibles now. So in your pew Bibles, it's page 1,157. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Aliens will shepherd your flocks, foreigners will work your fields and vineyards, and you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of their shame, my people will receive a double portion. Instead of disgrace, they will rejoice in their inheritance, so they will inherit a double portion in their land and everlasting joy will be your, theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and iniquity. In my faithfulness, I will reward them and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nation and their offsprings among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I will delight greatly in the Lord my soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes, up, makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. And then in the New Testament, we're moving on to Matthew chapter 4, starting at verse 23, reading through 512. And that's on page 1500. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Thanks for reading, Cindy. Good morning, everyone. It's nice to see you. If you don't know who I am, I'm Simon, lead pastor here at City Light Church, North Adelaide. Um, if you've heard the name Jacko mentioned a bit this morning, that's me. Um, that's my nickname uh, around here. But it's nice to see you all this morning. Uh, we're continuing in our series uh, through the Sermon on the Mount. We are at week two. Um, I'm going to get you to turn to the person next to you. And here's your challenge for this morning. I want you to describe what you did yesterday, all right, to the person next to you. Describe what you did ne- yesterday with as many verbs in one sentence as you can. Does that make sense? I've been doing home learning, right, with kids for the last two weeks. Uh, and when it comes to, like, you know, words and English and things like that, all these little challenges get thrown at my kids. So I want you to turn to the person next to you. Describe what you did yesterday with as many verbs. You know what they, they are? Like action words, doing words, you know, that sort of thing. Um, turn to the person next to you. One sentence, like it can't be like an endless paragraph, right? But one sentence, pack as many verbs in as you can. Okay, does that, does that make sense? There's a few blank looks out there. I didn't do grammar when I was at school, Jacko. That was like ages ago. Have a go, have a go. Many verbs as you can, go. Alrighty, alrighty. As that was happening, there was a heckler from the front who said, it's not fair. I'm married and sitting next to a linguistics major. Um, and uh, we'll, yeah. Anyway, if you need to know what grammar is, maybe talk to Nicole. There you go. Um, she might be able to help you. Um, anyone get more than one verb in their sentence? A few nods. Two, three, no, four? No. Nah. 25. 25. Crazy, crazy. Still going. It's a long sentence. Let's pray. Um, let's pray. Father, we pray that uh, by your spirit and through your word this morning we would, uh, Lord, hear you speak to us. Uh, Father, more than any voice in the world, uh, even more than mine, Father, we need to hear you. Uh, We need to hear your wisdom, uh, your genius, your love, uh, your grace, your mercy, the hope of the gospel. We need that more than anything today. And so, Father, uh, please do speak to us by your spirit, through your word, that we would see, hear, and love Jesus this morning. And I pray this and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We've just begun to work our way through uh, what is this amazing collection of Jesus' best loved teachings known as the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew chapter 5, 6 and 7. It would be great if you had uh, Matthew chapter 5 open in front of you this morning, uh, either on your device or in your Bible. Um, The Sermon on the Mount is uh, about 2,000 words long, and last week, if you were here, we knocked out 
One word. One word of the 2,000 words last week. The first word, in fact, the first word of each of the first nine lines or nine paragraphs, uh, it's the very important biblical word, makarios, blessed. Such a misunderstood word. And I tried last week to show, that the idea, to show us the idea of being blessed in the context of what I believe to be one of the Bible's most compelling ideas. The idea is this, that obeying God is to participate in his genius. The genius that is built, his genius that is built into the very fabric of the world, the world expressed in his instructions for life. You see, God's commands that we have in his word are not arbitrary, right? They are his genius. And it's the same genius in the Bible that created the world and then gave us these instructions to live by. And last week, uh, to kind of get our heads and our hearts around this concept, I asked us to imagine this, the mighty Leotorp, Ikea system. Uh, uh, apparently, it's one of the most sophisticated and complex IKEA products on the market. Um, I asked us to think about how the idea, uh, how the, the, how, I asked us to think about how the genius of IKEA is built into this product, but the same genius is expressed in the instructions that come with the product. It's the same genius. The same genius that created the Leotorp is expressed in the instructions that come with it as well. And you are free, right? I talked about this last week. You are free when you come to make the Leotorp to not worry about the instruction manual that comes with it, right? You can innovate if you like. So because you're tired, you could skip over steps five to 10 if you really want to. Or you can express your own individuality by leaving out the screw at step number 47 if you really want. But the reality is, right, you won't be doing yourself any favors. That was what I was trying to say. That was my point. That kind of individuality and self-expression is the path, actually, to not being able to put together the mighty Leotorp. There is only one way to participate in the purpose of the thing, and that is to participate in the mind of the manufacturer by following the instructions. And the point I tried to make was that obedience to God's word and works works in the same logic. God's genius, his wisdom is built into the very shape and fabric and nature of the world and creation itself, and it's expressed in his instructions for life. Therefore, when you obey God, say when you obey the Sermon on the Mount, you are blessed. Not just in the trivial sense, you know, of God rewarding you with a big prize or a big gold sticker for your good behavior. You're blessed when you obey God in the profound sense that you are participating in the mind of the maker and enjoying the very purpose of your existence. But how does that all fit with the opening lines of the Sermon on the Mount? Especially as you look at the Beatitudes, right? That's what they're called, these blessing statements. If you have a look, chapter 5 uh, and down there, blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus says. And then he says, blessed are those who mourn. There's not much enjoyment here, right? So how does blessing go with grieving, mourning, and being poor in spirit? Well, there is enjoyment here, sort of. It's a kind of yes and no thing because at the heart of Jesus' teaching all over the Gospels is a tension. A tension between the world as it is now, 
with its mix of beauty and frustration, and the world as it will be when God's kingdom comes in its fullness when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And this tension between the present and the future is everywhere throughout Jesus' teaching, including in Jesus' famous Lord's Prayer, which actually comes from the Sermon on the Mount. Think about the following with me. Um, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, we pray for the future kingdom to come, but we also long for God's will to be done here and now today. Yes, there is a future hope, but there's also a present reality. And this tension between the present and the future is front and center in this opening section of the Sermon on the Mount, known as the eight Beatitudes or the blessing statements. Um, Notice, if you would, as you glance down at Matthew chapter five, notice how most of the Beatitudes um, speak about something that's in the future. So look at the second Beatitude there in verse four. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. In the English, right, a bit of grammar is good for you. That's future tense, right? In the English, it's also future in the original. Uh, the next one, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Again, it's a future tense. But the first and last Beatitudes are in the present tense, and this is pretty important to spot. So look at verse 3. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, like now, it's present tense. And then verse 10, the last of the eight Beatitudes says the same thing, but about the persecuted. The persecuted, Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I don't wanna get too nerdy. I don't wanna get over technical here, right? But the repetition of the expression, theirs is the kingdom, verse three, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, verse 10, is a deliberate literary device, or it's a device of public oratory called an inclusio. Can you say that with me? Inclusio, yeah, drop that, that lunch today with some friends, I don't know. I don't know, have have we talked about inclusios before? I don't know, maybe not. Let me tell you anyway. An inclusio, right, is where the opening line and the closing line of a section say the same thing. It's a way of kind of packaging a section of text into one thematic kind of pack, right? So although there are lots of words between the top and the bottom lines, they all more or less say the same thing. And this is true of the eight Beatitudes. They are all about one thing, the tension of living now in light of the future kingdom. Living now in light of the future kingdom. We have four tastes of the kingdom, but we wait still for its full realization when the Lord Jesus returns. Um, Famous uh, British theologian John Stott, um, I spruced his book, his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, Uh, during the week. Worth getting your hands on. There's some copies up the back. If you're quick, you can have it for free. Um, Otherwise, you've got to pay like 20 bucks. But anyway, um, great little commentary. Um, John Stott says this on this idea of future and present. The promises of Jesus in the Beatitudes have both a present and a future fulfillment. We enjoy the first fruits now. The full harvest is yet to come. 
The future tense in the Beatitudes emphasizes their certainty and not just merely their futurity or their kind of futureness. What he's saying is we know now the blessedness of participating in the mind of God the maker and so enjoying the purpose of creation. Christians, we have that now. But we also wait for the full realization of God's purposes in creation when his kingdom comes, when Jesus returns and makes all things whole and fixed and just and right and new. And while we wait for that to come, there will be mourning and grieving and frustration, even persecution at times. And I don't just mean frustration with the world out there, you know, all those nasty, pesky non-Christians, you know, giving us a hard time, persecuting us. Because notice the very first beatitude, the first thing Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount is that the problem starts with me, not out there, with me. Look at verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I think this is the most remarkable opening line. It's even more remarkable when we fully understand its meaning. Matthew, the writer of the gospel, thinks it's absolutely remarkable. And so he does two really cool things to kind of build up our expectations for the opening line. I want to show you these two things, how he builds our expectations for Jesus' words. Firstly, he's told us that there's a giant crowd listening to what Jesus is about to say. So if you just read chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, as before the Beatitudes, um, you wouldn't know who's kind of hanging out and listening to what Jesus has to say. But in chapter 4, verse 25, the paragraph before, we read this. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him, Jesus. That's the mob that's there to hear Jesus give this speech, the Sermon on the Mount. So our expectations are building. Giant crowd is there about to hear Jesus. But then verses one and two of Matthew chapter five offer the grammatical equivalent of a drum roll, right? If Richard hadn't busted his ankle at basketball earlier in the week, I would have got him up quickly to play. It's a big drum roll. Um, because what you have here, they do exist actually, grammatical drum rolls. Here is one. Um, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Matthew uses seven verbs. Seven verbs. And I bet, really, you've never written a sentence with seven verbs in it before, right? It is crazy. Now, Matthew's Greek is top shelf, right? Absolutely top shelf. So we know he doesn't normally do kind of clumsy, but here he deliberately just piles up the verbs to make his point. And our English translators, because they really love us, um, they've tried to tidy it up a little bit, so they've spread these seven verbs over three sentences, and because they really love us, they've dropped a verb out, right? So we don't get over-verbed. Um, but here's what Matthew literally says before Jesus opens the Sermon on the Mount. Seven verbs, seeing the crowds, he ascended the mountain, and sitting down, his disciples came to him, and so opening his mouth, he taught them, saying. 
I mean, come on. It's a little bit over the top, right? But the effect of it all is to slow things down so we would listen and concentrate. Because this is the opening line of the Messiah's manifesto, you know, drum roll. That's what he's kind of saying. And then and only then does he let us know the opening line of the Messiah's manifesto. And look at it. It's a call for all of us to admit our spiritual bankruptcy. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Spirit doesn't mean our emotions. It doesn't mean our mental set. It means your inner self, my inner self before God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who know their bankruptcy before God. And consider this. The richest, most profound ethical discourse or teaching in world history begins by naming our ethical poverty. I really like the way Canadian-born New Testament scholar Don Carson explains this idea of being poor in spirit. Poverty of spirit is the personal acknowledgement of spiritual bankruptcy. It is a conscious confession of unworth before God. As such, it is the deepest form of repentance. When you know that your inner self before God has no credit, you've come to know poverty of spirit. If you're having trouble getting your head around this, why don't we do a little test this morning? Are you ready? A little test? Just on your own? I'm going to read um, some random statements from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and I want us all to give ourselves privately, don't have to declare this publicly, a score out of 10. Okay, zero being terrible, 10, nailed it, all right? And to make it easy on us, I just want you to think about the last seven days, okay? That's your period, okay? Understand, ready? Score out of 10, here we go. Statements from Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. How do you go? Zero to 10. Anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Anyone who looks lustfully at a woman has already committed adultery with, adultery with her in his heart. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go the extra mile. Love your enemies. How are you going? Be careful, Jesus says, not to practice your righteousness before others, to be seen by them. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. And if you think you're going pretty well at this point, here's the last one. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I was doing really well until I said the word anyone at the beginning. How'd you do? If these teachings are the true ethical riches, who of us is not a pauper? And yet here is the most 
precious truth you will ever, ever hear. If this is true, this is the most precious thing you could ever, 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 ever know. To all who admit the poverty of their inner self before God, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To all who admit the poverty of their inner self before God, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom. It's extraordinary. We enter the kingdom of God not by performing the Sermon on the Mount, but by admitting that we haven't and that we can't and that we actually have no right to enter the kingdom in the first place. Then the kingdom is yours because the gospel, as the gospel unfolds, right, Matthew's gospel, it becomes pretty clear that the whole meaning of this is that Jesus lived the perfect life that none of us could live and he gave up his life as a sacrifice on our behalf on the cross. A perfect life for our imperfect lives. He bore our judgment so we could be forgiven. His riches cover our debt before God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Wow. I had a really fascinating conversation just this week with a friend um, who politely told me, politely told me that he, he likes some bits of the Christian faith, but just not the bits of the Christian faith about like human guilt and divine mercy. You know, his argument was, you know, the divine mercy and the human guilt bit sort of crushes the human spirit. If you tell people that they're sinful and need to depend on the mercy of God, it'll crush their spirit. He said he much preferred the idea that we've got all that we need within us in order to redeem ourselves and to remedy all the problems in the world. It was his position. And I, and I said to him, actually, man, I think the shoe is on the other foot. I think what you've just said to me is actually a recipe for crushing the human spirit. You know, I asked him to imagine, right, growing up in a family where you've got to make the first 11, you've got to get straight A's all the way through, you've got to never get in trouble, you've got to become the school captain in order to be loved by your parents. That performance mentality, right, is a recipe for crushing the human spirit. I explained to him that Christians are more like kids who grow up knowing they're loved through and through and despite their lack of performance. That's where true freedom and flourishing, that's where security and significance lies. And I want to say to all of us here this morning, here is the most precious truth. As we make our way through the Sermon on the Mount, there are going to be moments when you look at the text and you say, I can't do that. And I'm so unworthy of this. And do you know what I want you to do at that point? I want you to say, yes. Yes, exactly. And yours is the kingdom. It's amazing. Blessed are those who know that their inner self has no credit before God. For there you can receive God's mercy, his riches. Now, once we understand the first beatitude, the second beatitude flows logically. Now, if you're sitting there this morning and you're freaking out, right? You're panicking because you go, I've got lunch plans today and he's only done the first beatitude. We're only doing the first two today, right? Um, at this rate, this sermon series will go until 2025. Um, but uh, we will make up some ground. So don't freak out. Uh, we'll pick up 
some of the more next week. But I do want to focus just on the second one because I do think it is linked in a really special way. See, if we lament the poverty of our own souls, we will rightly grieve over the injustice of the world. Yeah? Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn or grieve, for they will be comforted. Now, when Jesus says here, mourn or grieve, I don't think he's thinking about um, sort of the normal grief that we might experience uh, when we lose a loved one or someone really dear and close to us. Um, Although I think there is some secondary um, implications and applications here for that sort of circumstance. I'm pretty sure what Jesus has in mind is a specific kind of grieving and mourning uh, that most commentators actually say has its basis in Isaiah 61, our Old Testament reading. So Isaiah 61 probably lies behind the Beatitudes, and in particular this one, mourning, grieving, turning into comfort. Yeah? Let, me, let me read um, some of Isaiah 61 to you. Look at the screen. Uh, this is a prophecy that was written, um, came 800 years before the Lord Jesus uh, set foot on planet Earth um, in around Galilee. Isaiah writes, I'm inspired by the Lord, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from the darkness, from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Here it is, to comfort all who mourn. And it goes on, for I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. But the particular grieving and mourning that Jesus has in mind is grieving and mourning at the injustice, the robbery, the wrongdoing in the world. And I want to make what seems to be a very basic point but is unfortunately sometimes lost on the church. The the demeanour of the Christian, this side of God's kingdom, will often be grief at the state of the world. The demeanour of the Christian, this side of God's kingdom, will often be grief at the state of the world. Now, I, I don't mean judgmentalism, right? Please, Please be clear on this. I don't mean judgmentalism for which we Christians can be famous. No, I mean a a humble melancholy that first sees the evil in our own hearts and then and only then looks out at the injustices of the world and mourns and grieves. I caught myself just this past week uh, missing the whole point of this, actually, and becoming a little Pharisee, actually, um, you know, a little high and mighty, and looking down on everyone else. Um, I like to think of myself, I hope this comes across, I like to think of myself as being a fairly non-judgmental kind of person, um, especially on the big hot-button issues of the day. Um, I won't name them, but I'm pretty, I'm pretty non-judgmental. I have thoughts, I have opinions, I have ideas about a whole lot of things. I'm actually convinced, right, that the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the reality of Jesus' resurrection, is the key hill for all of us as Christians to die on, right? Jesus didn't rise from the dead. We should all be going and having lattes and eggs benedict this morning, right? Not gathering here, singing songs to Jesus and patting each other on the back and say, keep following Jesus, right? We shouldn't be doing that. If Jesus is truly alive and he's risen from the dead, that changes absolutely everything. And everything we're doing here matters hugely. That's my big issue that I want to go. But I... 
I don't usually think of myself though as being like judgmental. I'm pretty non-judgmental. But apparently on the mundane things in life, I can be a Pharisee. Here's what happened, right? There was a special investigation on ABC News uh, just recently about the housing market in Australia. Um, A probe had been um, put in and uncovered a a deep scam at the heart of the real estate industry. And I hear you say, what's new about that? Anyway, um, this is what happened, right? They did this probe and apparently real estate agents, and welcome this morning if you're a real estate agent. Lovely to have you here at City Light Church North Adelaide. Apparently real estate agents in the hundreds, right, have been exposed for telling vendors, right, the people selling the property, um, one particular price, and then telling prospective buyers a much lower price in order to get them interested. Now this is actually illegal, uh, but they've found, you know, again, welcome real estate agents, they've found ways to get around this law, Um, yeah. So the one selling the property is really interested in the high price. The one wanting to get into the market is told a different price in order to get people to flock to the auction. But but here's what happens, right, as a result of this deceit. Tons of young men and women and, and families trying to break into the property market get sucked into spending thousands of dollars on inspections and property reports which they have no hope of winning, only discover that, right, 30 seconds into the auction. Um, I remember when we were looking for a house, I went along to a property um, not too far from Prospect, and uh, we thought we were in the goods. We actually experienced this. We were told this super low price. We thought, nah, but wow, that'd be amazing. So we turned up. I turned up with Stella, and we went up, and I signed uh, the form, you know, to register as an interested buyer, and uh, the person said, choose your lucky number. And I said, I don't have a lucky number. So I just grabbed whatever paddle I did, walked out the front. And where was Stella, right? She was much younger. And we're standing there and the auctioneer babbled on forever and ever and ever. And then finally the auction started. And within, like literally within 30 seconds, I was gone. Like I was just knocked out of the park. And then I got this like pull on my pants from Stella. Dad, why aren't you waving your paddle around, Dad? And I said, we're done. Stella, we got no chance. And then she grabbed it. And I'm like, put it down. Like, you know, like, don't do that. But it's robbery, right? It's injustice. But apparently it's endemic, right? And here's my point. I sat there watching this show on TV, all high and mighty, all superior and indignant, on, all, on behalf of all those people, if you're out there trying to break into the property market. And I caught myself. And because possibly because I was reflecting on the Sermon on the Mount at the time, I caught myself thinking, that's not the mind of God, Simon. I don't stand in a position of superiority and look down on anyone. Am I so innocent? Do I never tell different things to different people to get my own way or a better outcome? Do I never manoeuvre myself to put myself first? Do I not crave a little bit more? Of course I do. And my knowledge of that should temper my feeling about the injustice in the world. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that Christians should never, you know, 
take a stand and never have any moral outrage. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that we should all be, you know, sad monks sitting on a mountaintop somewhere, tucked away in a monastery, all passively going, you know, woe is the world, woe is the world. That's not my point. For the Sermon on the Mount, well, pretty soon, actually, tell God's people we are to be peacemakers, beatitude number seven that we'll work for injustice in the world, that we'll seek as much as we can to redress poverty and all of that. We are to be active. But here's the point I'm trying to make. Amidst our grief at the injustice of the world, an action to redress injustice in the world, we will not be judgmental. We mourn. We don't judge. If you know your own poverty of spirit before God, you'll be quick to mourn and slow to judge. Quick to mourn, slow to judge. I am convinced this is the basic stance of a follower of Jesus, a Christian, in a fallen, broken world. And I think there's comfort here. Jesus says those who mourn, those who grieve, will be comforted. And I reckon this has both a future and a present edge to it. Of course it's future. Because when Jesus returns and God's justice comes, it'll be fantastic, brothers and sisters. God will make good on every act of evil that has ever happened. He will restore everything that is broken, all grief, gone and comforted. But here's the thing. We know now, we know today that evil will not win. And that, I find that terrifically comforting. We know the end of the story. We know that justice will prevail. And we have God's spirit in us, right? Supernaturally granting us peace in a chaotic world. And that same spirit empowering us to work and to see God's will as it is in heaven done here on earth now. All that's, I find, a terrific comfort. We have foretastes today of the coming kingdom. Let me close by saying this. The Sermon on the Mount is God's genius. God's genius. And we are called as his redeemed people to participate in the mind of the maker. And I reckon it involves this admitting the poverty of our own spirit before God, trusting and receiving the free gift of forgiveness and the kingdom that comes with it. Involves mourning the state of our world. It involves being empowered by the spirit, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, acting to redress injustice, overcome evil as we have opportunity and where we see need. And when we do that, we are blessed. We are doing what we are made for. We're doing what we've been saved for. We're living for the future kingdom now. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom, clarity about ourselves, confidence in your word, 
that we might depend on you for everything. Trust in your grace for all our fallenness. Father, this morning, as we've heard your word read and explained, we come afresh before you, Father, knowing that we are scandalously, endlessly loved by you through your Son. But we come afresh before you this morning admitting the poverty of our spirit and our desperate need of a fresh understanding of the gospel that sets us on our feet again. Help us to, again this morning, receive and trust in the free gift of the kingdom. Father, help us to look out upon your world and not judge it, but grieve. And with your help and with the gifts you've given us, seek to redress the injustice and the evil that we see around us. Father, we so desperately need an outpouring of your spirit on us, individually, as a church, that we would embody your mind in this place, in this suburb, in this city, and in this country. And Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.